0: Lake and terrain effects on your astronomy for episode 383 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky and this podcast is for everybody else who likes going out under the stars. Shane, are we going to do the Patreon draw now or later?
1: Uh,
0: <laughs> I to... yeah, Surprise, I, guess... I meant to ask you that before.
1: <laughs> yeah, let's do it at the end of the show. Give me a minute. I'll have to uh prep that. I awesome. completely forgot, but yeah, let's do it this episode.
0: That will keep people staying tuned. People will think we plan that and makes it <laughs> a, makes makes us look really smart, which we are not. Thank you for that. Joining us this morning is Alistair Ling. I'll read a brief bio of you, Alistair, and then we will get going. Alistair Ling has been watching this guy since Missing Comet West in 1976. He has been a regular to Astronomy Magazine and Deep Sky magazine, which uh uh, deep Sky Magazine is a long sought after publication by those of us who are visual deep sky observers, and mm. uh, you you can find those I think still, Alistair, and maybe even order some of them new. But uh, I know you did write for that magazine, uh, but maybe I'm maybe I'm mistaken, but I'm I'm certain of it. That that was essentially my first uh, glossy publication. And, and what a publication it was. I remember reading your articles in there. Um, he has a longtime passion for moonrise and uh, moonset times, which we use for the calendar. So thank you for that, Alistair. Mm-hmm. And uh, Alistair, uh, you, you're now a retired person, but uh, before you retired, do you want to just give us a little bit of information about uh, where you worked and what you did for that mm-hmm. work, which people might find somewhat interesting for our topic this morning?
1: Yeah, thank you.
2: Uh, yeah, um, I uh, w- was a uh, operational meteorologist for Environment Canada. So that's our national weather service here in Canada. And uh, we uh, f- forecast for the whole country uh, from uh, east coast to west coast to uh, the North Pole. Uh, but uh, we break up into regions and we do both the uh, public uh, forecasts that you would hear on the radio or CTEX. And we also do aviation meteorology. We do other sorts of uh, uh, long range meteorology and stuff too. But uh, I was uh, on the aviation side for quite a long time and spent a little time in uh, um, Toronto, grew up in Montreal, uh, and then um, came out to Edmonton. Uh, it was the farthest north i could go at the time and because i knew in the future i wanted to be farther south but then life happens you fall in love and uh, oh well i'm here in edmonton now uh, <laughs> but uh it's so it's on the, the western edge of the prairies uh, not uh, uh too far from the rocky mountains and uh it, it's a, a pretty reasonable place to do astronomy mm-hmm. uh, but uh one of my favorite little sayings is Canada is a stupid place to do astronomy. <laughs> <It's like laughs> There's there so much going against you all over the place, but Hey, we live here and uh it's uh, in some ways it's sometimes not that bad. So uh, yeah. we get a lot, of, a lot of good nights.
0: Yeah. Well, being uh, also being from uh, Eastern Canada, I guess if, if we're going to say uh, Quebec is, is sort of on the Eastern side of Canada. I'm a little bit Eastern than that. Even, uh, uh, a friend of mine, who, who I used to observe within Ontario, said, "If if you observe." on the very eastern edge of canada you have to really want to do astronomy to do it
2: (laughs) so oh yeah so um in aviation meteorology uh the we've uh, forecast um both regionally as well as for the site-specific airports so we forecast uh, the uh, base of any clouds visibility the wind for wind shear for landing and takeoffs and also clear air turbulence uh higher up so that, that's where I got a lot of my uh, experience in uh, understanding the upper-level uh, turbulence.
0: Maybe but we can start talk- there. Actually, uh, Alistair, oh. maybe we can start there, and uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about um, turbulence as a uh, phenomenon.
2: Yeah, um, turbulence is uh, uh, essentially the what happens when a nice smooth flow of uh, fluid, be and Air is a fluid, uh, uh, acts just like water, um, but with different properties, of course. Uh, But uh, when uh, uh, a fluid flow, uh, goes out and there's a shear, so stronger, faster flow in one area and slower flow in another. Eventually, it breaks down into these uh, nice little v- what we call vortices, the the little uh, mini tornadoes that uh, you, you will see uh, billowing out to the side. If you're a canoeist and you paddle, uh, all Canadians are canoeists, aren't we? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you see the nice little uh, vortices. The uh, uh, mini tornadoes. And so uh, fluid flow is, uh, is filled with uh, turbulence and is one of the, back in the 40s, was re- essentially recognized as one of the um, unsolved problems of physics. And, uh, but, hey, we have to deal with it, and we're, we're not going to go too deeply here into um, the, uh, the nitty-gritty of turbulence, but it happens at all scales, from your uh, coffee cup uh, all the way up to uh, large billowing um, issues uh, up uh, high in the atmosphere. And usually with the atmosphere stuff, it's all about uh, sheer uh, up there. and so you can have shear from a curved flow. the inside of the curve is going perhaps uh, slower than the outside of the curve, and that uh, in so the that transition from slow to fast is where the turbulence suddenly, the nice smooth flow will break down into these. Uh, vortices. And uh, so you can have shear that way. And you can also have shear vertically. Uh, Often the uh, airspeed aloft is much faster than the airspeed near the ground. And so as you get that difference in speeds, uh, suddenly the nice smooth flow buckles. And uh, you can see it from a a candle uh, putting out, especially if it's a smoky candle, Uh, you just watch it nice smooth flow and all of a sudden, poof, it just uh, buckles into this and all these waves and when we look through uh, this stuff uh, that's when uh, we we get what we call seeing uh, through our uh, telescopes uh, and usually for us though um, the the main problem is uh, different densities and uh, as air Moves around, uh, higher, lower. It encounters different uh, pressures. More pressure closer to the ground because there's more air uh, above you. Um, and and the uh, so what you end up happening um, is that you get uh, bubbles of different densities, and the different density refracts the air, uh, or pardon me, refracts the light coming through it. And so you essentially get um, many very weak lenses spreading the light into uh, its uh, rainbow colors, um, or it just sort of shifts the light sideways a little bit and as it pops out the other side of these uh, bubbles. And so sometimes the bubbles are, um, they can be very big and they can be right down into the uh, uh, millimeter scale. Uh, but it's it's that those shifting bubbles as, as the air moves past the front of our telescope uh, of different densities, that's what we end up seeing. And what we hope for is a nice, smooth laminar flow so there's no buckling going on. The densities will be different, but as long as it's all nicely stratified, uh, then uh, we can get a, a really nice view through it.
0: So what does it mean uh, if it's nicely stratified and and what is laminar flow? Can you just, because I I know what laminar flow is, but I don't really know what it means to be well stratified. Can you just explain those two terms for the listener? Yeah, sure.
2: Okay, so... Laminar, uh, if any of you have laminate flooring, <laughs> you, you, you might know what that means. It's the same root. Uh, laminar is essentially the, the the Latin root for layer. So if you have a, a think of a, a, a birthday cake with different layers. If your air is flowing like that so that your, uh, your icing layer is nice and even, and then your cake layer is nice and even, and then your top icing layer, nice and even... If it's like that, that's what we call laminar flow. So everything's uh, moving very smoothly, Uh, a gentle stream moving over uh, just uh, light pebbles uh, where you can see through the stream down to uh, the the bed of uh, a shallow river. If everything is sort of, wow, that's clear, that means it's laminar. Things are just moving uh, uh, together without any of this buckling or tumbling uh, into uh, turbulence. So uh, th- that's uh, laminar. Now, stratification, what ends up happening for the uh, atmosphere in general is that you have uh, air of different temperatures and generally cold air sinks. Cold air is denser than warm air. And so it sinks and then the warm air lifts uh, up above it if there's not much happening. So like at night, the, the cold air will sink and we'll talk about that where you get, it's colder in the valleys than, than higher up. And the, the, and so that it will be a, um, <clears throat> excuse me, what we end up calling an, an inversion. The temperature is cold at the surface and it's warm above it. And that actually ends up being a stable situation so we we do call uh when we look at the uh stability of the atmosphere we have uh stable situations where it's cold below warm above and then we have unstable situations where it's warm below cold above and what ends up happening there is the uh something that is uh think of we we tend to think of things in cubic meter size, it's easy to visualize, but the the scales are all over the place. Uh, So imagine a cubic meter of warm air and it's surrounded by cold air. Well, the warm air is less uh, dense and so it will actually uh, float in that cold air. And so it moves up and then you end up having uh, the air around it move down because everything has to compensate and so the the warm um, air moves up, but as it moves up it goes into lower pressure aloft and so it expands. And so when a bubble of air expands, it cools down. And so it can expand enough that it cools and it's a, it's a property of the uh, of, of the Air, we like to call air molecules. As you know, air is nitrogen, oxygen, argon, da-da-da-da. But it just it's easy to think of it as air molecules. And so at some point it rises, it gets colder, it expands, and then oh, it finds itself uh in warmer air aloft. And so it's go, oh, now I'm colder than the air around me. So I'm going to sink back down again. And so you get this up and down sort of sinusoidal uh um, buoyancy waves and we actually in meteorology call those gravity waves because it's gravity that's sort of the restoring force of mm. uh, the, the these buoyant bubbles that go up and down as it so it's hot it rises it cools it expands and cools then oh it's too cold and then it comes back down again so th- that's a uh, A big problem if you have uh, heating from uh, below, but that's where we get that stratification. And we call it an inversion because uh, typically if you climb a mountain, it's cold at the top and it's warmer down in the valley Mm -hmm. only really applies during the daytime where you have the sun heating the ground, so it's nice and warm below. And then, well, the atmosphere eventually gets colder because it's uh, the top end of it is uh, out, out there at just a few degrees above absolute zero, uh, up at the, the top levels. Uh, but the, uh, so the, the uh, classic form is that, oh, it's warm below, it's cold above. So if it's opposite that, where it's warm above and cold below, as you would get at night for us, that's what an inversion is, mm-hmm. and when when you have an inversion, it's very stable because that warm uh, local warm bubble tries to move up into uh, and and what it ends up going is it finds itself oh it's now warmer above so I've got to get pushed back down again, and so things don't move when uh, you have this uh, nicely stratified inversion or things don't move vertically so it's th- those are typically uh, our best conditions and especially um uh, in in the springtime uh, you get the uh, uh, in the eastern half of north america you get these very moist air masses coming up from florida and the gulf they uh, and as they move north it's a very warm air mass that's over cold ground and so it's nice and and stable things don't move you get this you know, oh geez, there, there there's you know, you can see the the uh, particulate pollution or very hazy skies, and you think, oh, it's going to be awful. But it's steady as a rock, and your views of the planets and the moon are often really good um, through these uh, hazy air masses because there's it's so stable and nicely stratified that the air is hardly moving and you get these wonderful views. Yeah, I
0: remember, I have to say, I I remember uh, Michael Gatto, who does the design work for the Observer's Calendar. You may be familiar with Michael. Hmm. Um, He's a phenomenal observer. And I remember, I went out to the observatory um, that the Halifax Center has. And I was out there one night and I, I get out of the car. I went out. I knew a few people were going out and I just went out and I walked in. I wasn't even going to bother setting up my telescope and he's in there observing. And I'm like, what are you doing? These conditions, they're terrible. You can only see like Jupiter and Saturn and a couple of other things. He goes, well, yeah, but it's the best view of Jupiter you're ever going to see. And <laughs> take, take a look, you know, and I looked in, and I was like, I couldn't believe it. Cause you could see like maybe a few dozen things in the night sky at, at a dark site, but you're right. It was that kind of, springtime condition where we had those um, systems coming up from the States and you had this beautiful, beautiful, steady atmosphere, but it was, uh, it was sort of thick, right? It was like, you know, a lot of uh, particulate matter, like you were saying. Um, there's a lot to go over here. Alistair, can, can you go over uh, two more terms before we get into the conversation, just to sort of bring everybody up to speed? Um, that is uh, astronomical seeing or seeing as we call it. And uh, the Antony scale. Okay uh the, yeah the
2: beginner uh, coming into astronomy will, will sometimes get confused because seeing uh, of course is, is oh it's just how good the night is but for us as uh, uh experienced amateurs and uh, into the professional um seeing is related to what we mean by turbulence so uh the uh the big trouble of course is how do you uh measure this stuff and the, uh, the more modern stuff that started uh, more than 100 years ago uh, was just looking at uh, how many arc seconds the seeing is. So a star uh, can be, as we all know, our point sources because they're so far away. The, uh, and then the uh, turbulence uh, will bloat the star to however many arc seconds across. And the smaller the number there, like one arc second seeing is decent for a, 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 an amateur astronomer. Uh, but when you go, when you hear sub arc second seeing, that means things are really good. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, uh, one of the observers, and I didn't get the date on Antionati, uh, but... <laughs> a very uh, well-known planetary observer back in the day. Mm -hmm. And he essentially classed the seeing into uh, five categories, where one is really poor seeing and five out of five is really good seeing. And Uh so he would uh, talk about uh, the amount of details that you can see. And uh, so those two sort of measurements are... Um, different ways of looking at uh, the same beast in terms of how much detail you can actually see.
0: Sounds good. Yeah, I'm just uh, Anthony Adi. He was observing um, in the late 1800s, early uh, 1900s when uh, when he came up with this. Um, the scale is one: perfect seeing without a quiver. Two: slight quivering of the image. Three: moderate seeing. Four poor scene and five, which is the one we're all too familiar with. Very bad scene. oh I had it backwards. My apologies. <laughs> so yeah, just just and I know we're we're just having a casual conversation trying to be minimum prep. I just I just looked it up there while we were chatting, just so we're all yeah on the same page. Okay, let's uh let's get into this now. Let's let's get the gloves off here, Alistair, and let's chat. So uh our conversation started because I've got a place here on uh, in a valley ish, I'm sort of towards the top of the valley. And what we were talking about was uh, what it's like to be in a valley, on a lake, and sort of maybe towards the uh, ridge top and the uh, the mixing of of the air here. Maybe I'll just give you a little bit of my experience first and then we can kind of riff on this. How does that sound? So where I'm at is uh, is in, it's a valley, but there's a lake in the bottom of the valley. The lake varies between one and three kilometers across. The lake is almost 100 kil- kilometers uh, sort of in total length. And then um, the, the one of the interesting parts about this lake is it's not very deep. I think the deepest spot in the lake is around 60 odd feet. Um, so it's not a super deep lake and there's a lot of shallows. In the lake, and because of that, the thing that I've noticed is that even when I start coming out here to stay in the spring, um, up until about the first of May, uh, that lake is pretty much frozen solid, um, with up to eight feet of ice depth. The ice depth last year was eight feet, Oof. and yeah. But here's here's the wild part: is being from the Maritimes and out east, uh, you know, if there's ice on a lake, you're not going to be swimming in that lake for a long time. For a long time here i've seen ice on the lake on the first of may and i've seen people swimming in the lake on the may long weekend uh and and i've gone down and put my feet my feet in the lake because i couldn't believe people were swimming and it wasn't that cold and i think because it's shallow there's not that much motion in it and when it warms up here it warms up so it goes from being like last year, it was in the minus 30s. And a month later, we were into like the plus 30s, uh, which might sound unbelievable, but it's kind of the way it is here. And uh, yeah, I think just because of that shallowness, that the changeover happens over a period of weeks, uh, not even hardly a month. And, and again, um, over the past couple of months, I've I've kept close tabs on this. And uh, back into late October, we were having very warm weather, as warm as Uh, mid to high 20s which is probably about the temperature the lake was at and then um, by the 17th 19th uh, range uh, the lake had started to skim over pretty good and by the 23rd 24th it had about six or seven inches of of ice over much the lake and now people have their uh, fishing shacks out there and people that are driving cars on it and stuff. I mean, it's uh it's got some pretty good depth to it. So that's over the course of uh six weeks it went from being uh positive twenty-ish to being uh so much ice on it that you can you can drive like a, like a Toyota four runner. I saw a Toyota four runner on it yesterday. So yeah.
2: Yeah and, and that's actually a slow freeze up for us. Because exactly. often it's you get a, a much harder uh, uh opening of the freezer and it's minus 25 and, and the ice forms pretty quickly but uh, yeah. yeah
0: so what kind of impacts from the weather as as somebody who's who's just finished building an observatory here on top of a hill at the uh sort of uh at the top of the ridge of a valley with a lake in the bottom what kind of uh impacts can should i sort of expect to experience in my observing here
2: yeah, that's a re- really good point. Uh, trying to figure out a nice site for an observatory, and there's uh, pros and cons for for everything. Uh, the The big thing about, say, uh, finding a ridge top, is it's going to be exposed to the wind. So, wind there is is your your really big issue. Yes. <laughs> um, the. Um, now when you go into the uh, bottom of the valley that's where the the cold air pools Mm -hmm. imagine just uh, pouring water water onto a topographic relief uh, model and it's just well the water finds the lowest points and that's what happens with the the colder air it's more dense it will uh, as as the ground cools uh, in the evening Uh, The air gets colder and then it just starts flowing towards the lowest spot. Now, the other thing that happens is uh, because it's colder, it's going to be closer to the dew point or frost point of the air. So Mm -hmm. air in the valleys is always uh, at night uh, more humid than the air uh, higher up. So that's another uh, slight advantage of the ridge top is mm-hmm. that the air will be overall uh, uh, lower humidity than the uh, one that's uh,
0: lower down. That so explains, th- before you go further, I want to say that does explain uh, several things. Um, one of them is in my selection of, of the site, um, when we were first looking for places, um, out of all the other locations we looked at, this one had the most cactus on it. So it's it's it, definitely a drier spot.
2: Yeah, and and of course, you know, people who do live in valley areas will go, "Oh yeah, fog collects yeah. in the valleys in the morning." And so yeah, that process is happening uh, all night and it's something we call drainage flow. Mhm. It it's just yeah, just water, well, thinking of water going downhill, well, air goes downhill as yeah. well so uh yeah you, typically you don't want to be uh anywhere near the bottom of the valley because you'll be fighting dew uh like mad uh, yeah that's, that, that's an issue there yeah uh,
0: we've noticed that once like there's there's a few levels to it we're on like there's the actual like pure top of the ridge we are just sort of down maybe um the top of my observatory is probably 20 feet from the top of the ridge And then it kind of goes down another step and then goes down another step, down another step, and then down another step. And then that's where the lake is. Yeah. Um,
2: So uh, among the things that happened with uh, the the drainage flow, uh, and I was talking with uh, Mark Ricard, uh, one of our observing buddies out uh, in uh, Quebec. I know Mark. Yes. He's a listener to the show, yeah. (laughs) And uh, he was telling me a little bit about the topography around his place and how the the seeing kind of, what ends up happening is that in the early evening, the uh, flow, that drainage flow, uh, will start from the higher terrain. Uh, He's got uh, the uh, Laurentian uh, Mountains in Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, so older, um, more smoother uh, mountains, but nonetheless, the uh, quite uh, decent hills Um, and so the cold air will form on those and flow downhill and that flow. Uh, will cause turbulence uh, Mm -hmm. because of course the 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 trees will hang on to some of it it'll be faster flow uh just above the treetops and and that flow will buckle again and the seeing will be quite poor in the evening for the first couple of hours but Mm -hmm. then what happens is that as the cold air begins to pool where where he is uh and you can imagine again that sort of uh, water filling up uh the you know the topographic relief uh a map is that as as that cold air fills up the bottom then any new colder air coming down isn't as cold as the cold air at the bottom so it's slightly warmer so you have that good stratification again. So it's cold below and slightly warmer above. So eventually what happens is that the air that's coming off the higher terrain is warmer than the cold air that's pooled down. And so it kind of skips across the top of that colder pool. And all of a sudden, oh, it's uh, the seeing is actually really nice. Uh, it's not the the flow, um weakens off uh, as you get through those evening hours. And then uh, once you hit midnight, things have all settled down nice and quiet and Mm -hmm. got really nice, steady seeing. And so that's one of the things he's learned that, oh, if if I want to do planets, uh, I'm better off waiting till 11 p.m. midnight. Mm -hmm. And that will also... Uh, uh, people out there in Radio Land uh, will uh, podcast land. Pardon me. <laughs> will will be nodding their heads when they go. Ah, that's why it's better to observe planets near dawn rather mm-hmm. than in the evening.
0: Yeah. And
2: the the entire atmosphere has had time to settle down and become sort of very nice and smooth flowing. And that will be your your best time, right to before dawn. And so that that's that will be something um, that uh, happens uh, in and around your your lake area. So, and yeah. I think
0: I think I've kind of stumbled on. Well, one one of the things that I found is because I'm here permanent, like not permanently, but I spend an inordinate amount of time out here, and I can really pick and choose. Like if it's going to be clear, I'm I'm sitting here. Um, and I think because of that, like, you're able to kind of pick the times more than, like, if you just picked a site that you have to go and, and get to, um, you're just going to be, like, like more choosy on when you get to that spot. Versus here, like, if it had cleared up this morning, it didn't. But if it had cleared up this morning when I looked out at, uh, you know, like, 1.30 or 2.30 and then and then I finally got up at 6 and it was still dark for a couple hours here at this time here at 6 o'clock, you know, I I could have observed at at those times if the conditions were uh were good enough for uh, for looking at for example like venus
1: mm-hmm. so.
2: yeah so there is a certain amount of um uh, choosiness uh, and everybody has their, their 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 different uh sort of climates uh around uh where i am uh, in edmonton it it's if i'm a real keen lunar planetary. Uh, type of person uh that's when I would be um setting up my schedule is doing what you're doing so well well I'm going to set the alarm for four o'clock in the morning because <laughs> of that I, all the time <laughs> it, it's going to be better because if I'm trying yeah. during the 8 p.m nine p.m it's just I'm going to be bashing my head ah the scene conditions are just yeah amazing. and so there there's a certain amount of flexibility which you should t- leverage to mm-hmm. t- to go for those things uh, but every now and then it's the well it's only going to be clear for four hours I'm I'm observing whatever I can yeah and th- that is our typical November here we just get
0: these short breaks and yep. it's, it's you get what you get and uh, there there you go um, yeah but I think I think as, with some of this like we as we were talking over the past several months uh, about this and I was like what are you talking about the scene here can be really good and I, I think it just comes down to like sort of observer bias because I'm able to kind of work around it. And just by the simple fact of of being here allows me to be uh, pretty picky when I'm observing the planets. And and if not the planets, I'll just observe other things. So it seems like I have a lot of good seeing here just because I'm able to take advantage of when it is good seeing. You know, yeah. I, I, I can get most of those nights. I think uh, probably I'm out here on 80% of the clear nights. So. And
2: that's why it's really useful to have uh, a separate uh, lists of things to do because if you're you know your plan a oh it seems really awful you know jet stream comes by like right after a cold front goes mm-hmm. through the winds
0: aloft are really strong typically in the mid latitudes so is that is okay so this and i knew you were going to get into some of this stuff and i'm really glad because i have noticed that that when you when you have that front come through it seems like It will be really clear, but unstable. And then, uh, like my friends and I have often commented, that it's like two or the third night later they can kind of be like what we call like that Goldilocks night. Like my buddy, Mike and I have noticed this just in our, in our own runs of observing. So you kind of, you almost like don't want your most clear night to be that night. You kind of want to see what's going to happen to the second or ideally like that third night down the road. Cause that usually seems like it's, so is that like, that's what's happening then with the jet Mm -hmm. stream. eh? Okay. The,
2: the, uh, what, what ends up happening in the, the mid latitudes. And this is, also applies to the mid-latitudes in the Southern Hemisphere, Uh, um, where where you have uh, a typical scale of weather systems is sort of every three days or so, or four days, something comes through. And and, uh, weather tends to organize itself on these uh, um, sort of uh, 2,000 kilometer uh, wavelengths. and. Especially on the East Coast, where you get a storm every sort of day, almost every day, coming yeah. up the Somewhere. East Coast in winter. But yeah, um, so you've got the the um, uh, a sort of uh, you know storm clear, storm clear, and and of course it's not necessarily storm in the the strongest sense, but just like
0: a low pressure system, system of some sort.
2: Yeah, and and so yeah, you get uh, system gap, system gap, and the uh, the airflow. Um, as it weaves through and around those systems is such that um, as uh, the wind speed is strongest where you have the strongest uh, gradient of temperature from cold to warm. And so, right at the cold front is where you have essentially the strongest gradient in terms of it's really cold on one side and it's really warm on the other. And so, the winds aloft are going to be really strong. It's just, there's a straight relation uh, that, um, that that works that way in the meteorology.
0: So, is is that what we call like shear, or is that something different? Well, it,
2: it shear is just the um, difference between slow and fast. Okay. Uh, in terms of speed, uh, we have a okay. temperature gradient along the surface as you look at a, a map and you go, yeah, cold to the north, warm to the south. But the, the more that you pack uh, the, the those areas closer together, the stronger the winds will be. And so will the, the shear will also be strongest because you'll have a certain amount of wind at the surface, but it gets faster and faster as you go aloft. The, the wind speed builds up as long as you have that a uh, uh, decent temperature gradient at the surface and so in between weather systems the that gradient is very um smooth uh and and well spaced out so there's less flow aloft and it's just that's basically a straight relation this the faster things go the more likely it is to be turbulent it's not a one to one relationship but uh we end up um when, when you do the sort of statistics of turbulence and, and that is an appropriate terminology, you find out the faster things go, the more shear there is, the more turbulence. And then so we get this opposite in between the weather systems. The gradient is weak. The shears are weak. The flow is slower there's going to be less turbulence. But I've seen some conditions where I've got, oh, look at this. We're, we're The air buff is hardly moving. This is going to be a night of good seeing. And it wasn't. And it's just like, man, it's like sometimes those, again, the scales are such that, oh, even with light flow, you can have turbulence. But it's just if you're um, playing the probabilities, the lighter the flow, the less turbulence you have. So, so yeah, right behind a cold front, Uh, it's, um, but that's often where you get the best transparency. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's like, okay, I'm shifting into wide field mode and go more powers. Yeah. uh, Going for my fainter extended objects. And uh, yeah, let's not worry about double stars when you walk outside. I've done that. And and it's just like, oh, even Jupiter is twinkling. (laughs) It's like, oh, boy, it's going to be awful.
0: Yeah. So basically, with really good seeing, people can use those higher powers in, uh, you know, for your planetary observing. Um, and for different types of observing, like you were saying, you don't necessarily need the most transparent skies for it. if the seeing is really good, you can make some really good uh, planetary observations. Uh, but when that seeing is is poor or sometimes what people will call super fast seeing, then, uh, you know, then you can take those powers back. But your transparency is. Um, is often pretty good on those nights so then you're doing like your lower power wide field observing and uh being from the east coast maybe that's why i like low power wide field observing so much because the scene can uh, tend to be rather poor out there yeah now getting
2: to your lake uh uh issue uh one of the things you'll find is that um in spring that will be your um early spring when when the lake is frozen that will be your best uh condition because again The the uh, well for one thing, uh, the lake is smooth. It's not rough, so any remnant wind coming by isn't going to be buckling and turbulent and gusty as it it's goes.
0: Very right it's now. very smooth right now. So the
2: flow f- from the ice, and what the ice does, of course, is chill the air next to it, so it mm-hmm. becomes stable. So you get that nice stratification, uh, and so. Uh, that flow from an ice-covered lake is going should be really really good because so, every-
0: okay oh. I, I'm going to keep cutting you off here because I have more questions. Go ahead. Um, because I'm out here observing, I've been out here the past two weeks, and I noticed this. And I do a lot of observing here, typically at night uh, on a night that has uh, very clear and transparent skies. Uh, I've noticed in the past that it can get like the temperature tends to plummet pretty good. Okay, mm-hmm. and so if it's like I don't know, whatever in the summer, maybe 30 degrees. I mean, it can get as cold as like seven or eight degrees. All right. But then I noticed the past two weekends, um, we're starting and it's like, uh, well, last night we started, it was minus six and it didn't even drop one degree an hour. It was dropping like, and I was like, whoa. And at at first it was a little bit unstable, but we did, uh, we did take a look at Saturn and Jupiter and kind of came back to Jupiter at the end. And I mean, we could start to see quite a bit of detail there. I, and I, I'm wondering now if the ice is sort of playing uh, a part of that. Because I've also noticed that Sometimes it can be a little bit warmer here, even than in like the surrounding areas, it might be two or three degrees warmer, but it, it's just not quite plummeting as much. I wonder if it's sort of helping keep this area kind of maybe closer towards that zero mark or something and not allowing the temperature to continue to dive
2: yeah the the uh the, there are other um subtle effects going on uh when um you, you get uh, th- this uh, cooling uh happening at night uh, but uh yeah when when temperatures are not changing all that much um well you've got a, a radiation balance and mm-hmm. of course this is um the, the, the word is not nuclear radiation but just the radiative transfer of heat mm-hmm. and it's when something is already fairly cool um it it, it well it, it can't get quickly uh that much uh colder. Uh and, and so you you'll um when yeah we're in this sort of well the high is minus eight and the low is minus fifteen. It's just like, yeah. well that's great. It things hardly move good seeing. Yeah. Um, But in, uh, when you started to get into autumn, that's when your lake temperature is, you know, great for swimming in in the chill autumn air. Um, but, uh, now as the the air around your ground, uh, around your observatory starts to cool, it Mm -hmm. goes over the lake and the lake is hot, Mm -hmm. relatively speaking. And so Mm -hmm. all those bubbles of warm air are gonna be rising off the lake, it becomes an unstable situation. There's a lot of mixing, a lot of very different um, uh, uh, densities of air. And so if you're looking across the lake in autumn, the seeing is pretty much guaranteed to be awful, or if the wind is coming from the lake and blowing across the observatory, it's bringing all the that turbulent, um, uh, very highly varied density across mm-hmm. you, and this, it, it, essentially you have to look opposite, if you want better seeing, uh, to look uh, downstream uh, of, uh, of where you are, and, and you might just have to um, suffer through those few nights when the wind is coming uh, off the lake Uh, and then we we get you know similar kind of um, Mm. problems um, with the the terrain Uh, again you get you know closer to the ridge top um, Mm. where you get that mechanical turbulence of the air coming across the ridge and uh, uh, buckling as it think of uh, the The flow around your car, uh, where Mm -hmm. you see uh, the way the behind trailing behind the car, it's all turbulent, but on Mm -hmm. the front side, it's uh, nice and smooth. And so that's where observatories, the big professional ones, like to be. Sort of on a mountain top, but towards the leading edge of a nice, smooth, gradual slope. You don't want uh, to be an, on the top of, uh, you know, a scarp where you have a very sharp change mm-hmm. in, uh, in terrain.
0: Um, yeah.
2: and and so that's our problem further west close to the rocky mountains uh you've got the the, the fast air coming across uh, the pacific over the mountains and it's just uh, 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 as <laughs> the <laughs> air comes across and uh, we get classic sort of three arc second seeing it's like yeah uh, <laughs> but if the flow is from the south then we're coming across the prairie lands and oh
0: hey good scene Yeah. My, my dominant flow, I mean, almost every night I observe the, the wind is pretty consistently from the, uh, West Northwest. Um, and that, and it's usually there's a bit of a breeze, even though like right here where I'm sitting is only a hundred feet away from the observatory. Um, I, there's like a little bit of a breeze, but you can't really tell where it's from. But if you walk up to the observatory, it's just like, whoop, you just know exactly, uh, what direction it's coming from, which is almost always in that sort of, uh, West, Northwest direction. Cool. we're getting uh, a little short on time. I, I've been kind of asking a lot of questions here, Shane, cause I'm pretty interested in this. Uh, I just want to make sure you had the opportunity to hop in.
1: No, I've been enjoying the conversation for sure. Um, it explains a number of things, uh, you know, that I've encountered for sure in my observing days and uh, helps a little bit, I think, with planning future sessions. So um, I'm intrigued also a little bit now by kind of the early morning planetary observing. Uh, Chris and I are very much opposites. I'm not the guy that sets my alarm for 4 a.m., but this gives me a more compelling reason, I think, if there's, you know, particularly favorable planetary observing you know, oppositions or whatever it might be that, uh, you know, I may start to set my alarm for a little earlier, uh, just to take advantage of that better seeing. So, um, anyway, nothing really to add though.
0: Yeah. That's, that's the only time I've been able to see detail on Mercury is, uh, sort of in that brief, uh, 30 to 40 minute interval when it's at, uh, Sort of greatest uh you know western elongation in the morning skies and you get a favorable uh position sometime in in november or something like that um and then then again like when i first started seeing detail on the uh, venusian cloud top um again that was all like you know going out morning after morning after morning for a couple apparitions in the morning skies and sort of tracking some of the clouds going going across there so it definitely, yeah, those morning skies are are good. Um, I, I I just like getting up and observing sort of in the middle of the night or the morning anyway. So, yeah. And and the sort of uh, the,
2: well, not final aspect of turbulence, there never is one, uh, is uh, one of the things that uh, will also uh, sort of make sense after a while is that these sort of bubbles of air, um, they often end up being about sort of four to five inches, that hundred millimeter uh, range. And that's one of the reasons why 100 millimeter refractors do well uh, at uh, when uh, bigger scopes right next to them. Oh, Jesus, seems really awful. And just like, well, through the refractor. The the image is sort of jumping around a bit, but it's sharp because you're essentially be looking f- sort of the entire aperture is looking through a bubble of maybe just a little bit bigger than the aperture. And so you don't get the differential refraction through that bubble, whereas a bigger scope will be looking through four or five bubbles as they go by. And so there the uh, the image gets mushed. And mm-hmm. so there's a, a there is a, a sweet spot in there for uh, the, the 100 millimeter range. Mm. And then you also throw in the, the cool down time. Mm-hmm. The bigger scopes have more uh, heat. And, and one of the, the fun things I like doing uh, to show people uh, uh, when they're beginning is to take a bright star like uh, Capella, Sirius, Rigel, uh, and defocus it so that you can sort of see the essentially the front aperture. And then I stick my bare hand out. Oh, you see the heat. Yeah. You see the heat coming yeah. off your fingers. And, yeah. and it's just like, whoa. And I'm just like, yeah, well, that, that's what uh, <laughs> that's what our atmosphere does and, and yeah. bubbles. And, of course, if you've got uh, a, a bigger scope, like you're in whatever, a 10-inch daub uh, with a standard thickness mirror, it's it's got a lot of heat to give up before um it um uh, cools down and so it takes a while for uh, the the temperature to um, get down to ambient temperature so the the, the four inch uh scope just whoop, cools down very quickly and so it, it is a a sweet spot for uh, uh, just a grab and
1: go and have a look at something you know okay. I, I i do have one question that just popped into my brain here is it so Alistair, just my anecdotal data here is that I've had the best seeing right around kind of twilight early, you know, early after the sun has set in the evening. Uh, that's the first time I saw the Venetian cloud tops. Uh, I've had some exceptionally memorable views of Jupiter where magnification could not be maxima, like there was no maximum. I could just keep going and and the view remained outstanding. Uh, Now, that's not every night, but certainly when I've had great nights of seeing, it seems like it's earlier on. Is that just pure luck or coincidence or? It's more likely to be related to having that uh, warm air
2: over the cooler ground. And so uh, was it, uh, well, it's one of those, it's either typically in spring when the ground is already Cold; it hasn't had a chance to get right up. Or um, sometimes in autumn, as long as you're not by open water, uh, we can have this warm air that's being heated. You know, in Montana, Wyoming, Utah, that comes up, and so that warm air is above the cooler air that's uh, over the uh, Canadian prairies. And so again, we're into that stable uh, situation. So you can have good seeing uh, in the evening, but generally, uh, it's uh, you've. Got to wait until uh um, mm. in into september before you start getting those uh real nice uh seeing yeah i mean we had one uh, i was watching um a galilean uh, mutual phenomenon we don't get those for another three years uh, but this is when the um, the moons like io europa ganymede callisto they actually move in front of each other or occult each other or they cast shadows and i had this one where Oh, Ganymede was going to be casting its shadow on Europa. It's, oh, this is this is going to be neat. You just expect to watch Europa just sort of slowly fade into nothing. <laughs> it disappears completely and then pop back up uh, over the course of a half an hour. And I was uh um, set up and just like okay. And then oh, seems good. Let's uh, let's put on the you know medium power. Ooh. Yeah, still good. Throwing oh, throw on a Barlow. Wow, still good. And just like, uh, uh well, let's Barlow my uh, four millimeter and see what happens. And mm. just, like, I can see the disc of Europa. Holy smokes! You know, yeah. and I was just, just getting pumped. I'm, I'm getting tingles just thinking about the situation. And i was just like, oh, I am going to be able to see the, you know, arc of, um ganymede shadow just like a, a lunar eclipse as you see the earth's shadow crossing it's like wow oh, able to see that and then all of a sudden the scene just completely crapped out and <laughs> i had to go back to 60 power oh yeah. just like,
1: no no <laughs>
2: <laughs> so it was just like oh yeah, twenty minutes uh, too too early was this uh, absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal scene, and then it just like wonk, Yeah, it it
0: it buckled, and uh, it was lousy after that. Well, thanks so much for this, Alistair. Um, I I don't mean to cut you off. We did talk about the fact that we could have a many many episode um, series on the weather. Perhaps perhaps we'll. Uh, eek that out over over the coming years because uh, it's it's one of those things if if people have uh, any questions about the weather maybe we'll ask they can uh, write in and uh, we can consult with you our our listener and expert uh, meteorologist here for the show Mm -hmm. that'd be great yeah we can do that yeah thank you so much for this um shane do you have anything to add to this show i know we have some housekeeping to attend to for our prize winners
1: yeah, why don't we get into that Chris? Let's um, get in. So, as we mentioned on previous episodes, we're doing a RASC uh 2025 observer calendar giveaway. 24. Oh yeah, 24. I uh I, because of work with fiscal year, I'm, I'm thinking <laughs> fiscal year 25 is coming up. <laughs> but uh anyway, you're right, 2024. There we go. Um so we did a random draw live on this episode actually and uh I'll announce the three winners. And what's kind of interesting, Chris, is we've only done a few giveaways on this show and we already have a repeat winner. Now. <laughs> so here we go. Um, so congratulations uh, to Mark Knoll, uh, Andrew Peters, and Josh Napke. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, thank you very much for your Patreon support. Thank you to all the Patreon supporters as always. Uh, we really do appreciate that. And uh, hopefully these folks appreciate the calendars.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for your Patreon support, folks. And like Gene said, it was just a draw. And we did give away two other things. I have to get in touch with those uh, listeners as well. So we're really giving away five things. Uh, a lot of people have had a chance to to enter the draw one way or another. So with that, I think we'll conclude this episode unless people have something to add. Thank you very much. It was fun. Yeah. Thanks so much, Alistair. And thanks to the listeners for listening. Uh, Just a reminder, we will be taking a break over the holidays this year for the first time in the three years we've been doing the show over the holidays. Uh, we'll be back on January 1st with our objects to observe slash observers calendar for the January 2024 uh, seasonal start. And so uh, if you have any show ideas, observations, questions, in particular, questions about weather and astronomy, you can write into to actualastronomy at gmail.com and we'll be happy to answer them or find an expert like Alistair who can. Thanks for listening, everybody.